uh, chapter 7 and verse 11, and we'll read through the end of the book this evening one last time into the breach, so they say. Uh, we're going to finish the Song of Songs this evening. I do trust that it has been as helpful and encouraging to you as it has been to me to study it. Uh, the challenge of preaching this book has, was not lost on me in advance, uh, but I've enjoyed every moment of this precious opportunity to work together with you through this inspired book of Scripture, especially uh, considering how God has blessed our church to uh, see fit that so many of our young people would attend evening worship together. So many of our teenagers and preteens are here with us each evening, and I trust that this will be food for them uh, in the years to come. Uh, with the Word of God open, let's pray, and then we'll read the Song of Songs from chapter 7, verse 11 through the end <clears throat> of the book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to this, your Word, to see what is, as we've called, love divine, all loves excelling. Help us to see Christ. Help us to think well of Christian love in marriage and in friendship and in all of its uh, facets, but help us most of all to see Christ. And pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold his glory contained in this your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Song of Songs, chapter 7. Beginning in verse 11, come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved." Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. <clears throat> we have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she's a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she's a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved. 
and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Love divine, all loves excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation, enter every trembling heart. Breathe, O breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit Let us find the promised rest. Take away the love of sinning. Alpha and Omega be end of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Come, Almighty, to deliver. Let us all thy life receive. Suddenly return and never, never more thy temples leave. Thee we would be always blessing. Serve thee as thy hosts above. Pray and praise thee without ceasing. Glory in thy perfect love. Finish then thy new creation. True and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before thee. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. This hymn written by Charles Wesley called Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, has served as the title for our sermon series in the Song of Songs, and it is the title of this evening's sermon specifically. It exemplifies for us what true divine love really is, and its warm expressions of passion and compassion are relevant, as relevant, for Christian love as they are for God's love for us in Christ. It draws our attention to the best love, to the highest love, to the most sacrificial and caring and lasting love that could ever be, the love of Christ for his people, the love of Christ for his bride, which is the church. It gives us, in other words, a target. This song, if we were to consider it piece by piece, uh, displays for us a target for Christian love reflective of God's love for us in Christ. And if we are to love in Christian marriage according to to Christ's love for us, we need to reflect on these words. I hope you picked up the difference that reading a hymn makes to singing it sometimes. We need to consider more readily Jesus' love for us and how his love establishes the paradigm for our love for one another in Christian relationships, specifically Christian marriage as it relates to the Song of Songs, but Christian relationship altogether. So as we work through these final verses of the Song of Songs, I want to draw from it for us four final lessons, four final admonitions or descriptions or goals of true love in the confines or context of Christian marriage. Let's consider together how a love that excels all other loves is, first of all, a love that's full of freedom and honor. A love that excels all other loves is a love that we might say is friendship on fire. A love that excels all other loves is a carefully guarded love that can't be bought. And lastly, a love that excels all other loves is a love that's never 
truly satisfied. It's a love that excels Christian love that is is a love that has freedom. In chapter 7, verses 11 through chapter 8, verse 5, we see this uh, for us in the interaction between uh, the Shulamite bride, she, as your Bible might say, and uh, her longing for her beloved as she speaks about him in this text. Now, what's really fascinating, if you recall from earlier in our time in the song, we acknowledge that this woman Uh, not only recognizes, but submits herself to the boundaries of Christian relationship. She recognizes the roles that men and women uniquely play in marriage, in their uh, Christian fellowship. But notice in verses 11 and 12 that she becomes the initiator, which is a little bit counter-cultural to an ancient Near Eastern setting and a little bit uh, unnerving to some of the parents out here in the room. Uh, she's the one that initiates in this case. Look at what she says. She says, come, my beloved, let us go together out in the field and lodge together in the village. Let's get away to be in love with each other, she says. Let's be in love and make love and enjoy one another in the countryside. She's the initiator. Now, let's pause for a second, all you parents who just developed a heart murmur. They're married. They're already married. And in the context of a healthy, godly marriage, there is freedom for her to operate like this. There's freedom for her to take the initiative and to say to him, I want to do this. Let's come and do what I want to do. Let's you and me go together out into the field, into the city, and let's enjoy one another and enjoy each other's love. She says in verse 12, I will give you my love when we go. Now, she recognizes biblical roles in marriage. She doesn't get ahead of wisdom or of love in God's design for intimacy. But in this God-honoring marriage, in this marriage in which there's conflict, we remember two weeks ago there was conflict, but last week we saw that that conflict led to repentance and restoration and covenant and joy. She doesn't just sit back and wait for her husband to say, let's enjoy one another, my love. She takes the initiative, and she can do that in this setting, in a healthy love that excels all other loves, because she's not a threat to him. She feels safe initiating their relational intimacy and fellowship and enjoyment because she knows that he loves her with all his being. He's made that very clear to her in the previous section, especially in light of their conflict. He's renewed his vows and demonstrated his commitment. And so she doesn't feel afraid to say to him, this is what I think we should do. There's freedom there. And he's not threatened by her because he knows that she loves him with all her heart. And because their covenant bond is strong and secure, and because he knows what his role is as the husband and she knows what hers is as the wife, there's freedom for them to enjoy mutual fellowship and equity together in marriage. A love like this, which excels all other loves, is not afraid. He isn't threatened by her initiative as though his leadership were being called into question. And she isn't afraid to rise to the occasion and take charge of ensuring that their love stays warm and deep and passionate. She's not worried about his reaction. And there's a reason she's not worried about his reaction. Do you remember last week? She caused a conflict that drove him away from the door. And he waited patiently for her and spoke words of wisdom and compassion and covenant faithfulness to her after 
the conflict. She has no reason to be afraid of him. She has no reason to fear his reaction. And so their passion and intimacy is freely given, freely enjoyed, and freely longed for by one another. There's a wonderful lesson for, here, for us here. When marriages are healthy and roles are understood and trust is present and conflict is dealt with well and with wisdom, when there's mutual opportunity for joy and pleasure, there's freedom in that kind of a marriage. There's freedom in that kind of a marriage. Do you long for more of that in your marriage? More joy and more pleasure, more freedom and more fun together, more passion longed for and given. Nothing in this text, by the way, implies that we get more joy or pleasure or fun or intimacy by taking it. It's very clear that it's being given freely. She invites him to come and she says, then I'm going to give you my love. Why? Because she loves him. And because he's earned her trust by his uh, uh, approach to conflict in marriage. Because he's offered forgiveness and because she sought to be repentant. And so there's freedom and there's joy in the sort of love that excels beyond all other loves. Well, there's not only freedom, but there's honor in this sort of a love as well. Now, as we get to chapter 8 here, uh, chapter seven, these last couple of verses are pretty obvious. Uh, what's being said here, obviously there's some euphemism here for the relationship, the love that they're going to share together. But in chapter eight, she makes this somewhat shocking statement uh, in verse one. She says, uh, I wish you were my brother so I could kiss you. And then I take you home to my mother so we could make love. And those, those lines, independent of any context, might strike us as a little bit strange. So let me explain what's going on here. Uh, first of all, she says she wishes he was like a brother, not that she wishes he was her brother, okay? So that kind of helps right off the bat. She simply says, I wish that you were like a brother to me. Uh, what she's saying here, and if you recall in previous chapters in the song, he has called her my sister, my dove, or my sister, my beloved. They're speaking about the level of relationship that they share, which is even closer than blood. That's what she's saying. I wish that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast, the same one who grew up in my household and knows me from infancy to adulthood, the same sort of fellowship and shared relationship that I have with the people who are closest to me by blood, is what she says. I want our love, our relationship, our intimacy to surpass any level of love or relational closeness that even siblings could have growing up in the same household. Some of you come from large families where you have many siblings, and you know that you know things about them that no one else does. Now, obviously, the frightening part of that is they know stuff about you that no one else does, not even your spouse. They know the things that you did when mom and dad weren't home, when they left you guys alone when you were 12 and 13 years old. They know what you were doing in the hallways at school when no monitors were walking around keeping an eye on you. They know what you were watching on TV or looking at on the computer when you were home alone or so you thought. They know what you're interested in and disinterested in and what you're faking and who you really are. That's how sibling uh, fellowship and, 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 and uh, relationship is in homes that grow up close to one another like this. And she says, I want our love to be even deeper than that I want to be like a brother and sister with you, not sexually, but relationally. 
And this is why she uses this language. I wish that we could be that close, that much aware of each other's whole person. This ought to cause us to think of the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 3, right? What does Jesus say? He's talking to his disciples and someone says, hey, Jesus, your family is outside. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Who's my family? My blood or those who do the will of my Father in heaven? You see, at the very least, we ought to be able to say that we have this sort of familial closeness in the church. That our true brothers and sisters, the relationship that exceeds blood relationships we have here in the church. We are brothers and sisters with one another. There is a deepness and a lasting love and intimacy that we share in Christ which ought to surpass any blood bond. So young people here, this is very important for you as you consider deep and meaningful and long-lasting and perhaps even marital relationships. It's so important that you marry in the Lord, that you find someone with whom you're already a brother and sister, with whom you already have that level of depth of fellowship and relationship because of your mutual shared love for Christ. You simply cannot have the same relationship with someone outside of Christ than you will with someone in union with him. Jesus was able to say to his followers, you all are my family even more than the people I'm related to out there by blood. That's very important for us. It's very important for you to know as you pursue serious relationships, don't waste your time pursuing the relationships with the people that you can never have this level of depth of relationship that the song commends to us. Don't make the mistake of unequally yoking yourself with a non-believer. The song warns us against this here. Now, why does she want to take him to her mother's home? She says, uh, I I would kiss you, I would lead you, verse 2, and bring you into the house of my mother, uh, she who used to teach me. I don't think this is strange. In fact, I think this is remarkable. You see, her mother would have been the one who taught her about marriage, about sex, and about being a godly wife, about what it meant to be a woman of noble character. So by bringing her husband, whom she loves and with whom she's faithful, into the home of her mother, she is honoring her mother, isn't she? She's saying to her, look, mom, I listened to your wise counsel. I didn't awaken love until it was ready. I didn't open my garden to anyone. And my love for Solomon is deep and abiding and covenantal and strong, even in the face of conflict. And it's passionate, just like you taught me. I've become a good and godly wife like you've raised me to be. This is honoring, isn't it? She brings him home. In other words, Solomon is the sort of guy that a gal ought to want to bring home to her mom. And she's the sort of young lady who wants to honor her mother by bringing the right kind of young man into the home. Young ladies, when you bring the wrong kind of young man into your home and say, this is the sort of guy I want to date or pursue, you're dishonoring your parents in that action. And young men, the same is true for you. When you start to pursue young women, perhaps outside of the church, and longing for a relationship with someone who doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a dishonor to your parent on top of being unwise for your life. Mothers, are you teaching your daughters to be godly women? Are you teaching them by your word and, more importantly, by your example? 
Would they be able to observe your relationship with your husband and say, that's what the Bible commends me to. That's who I should grow up to be. Are you showing them how to love their husbands and care for their homes and to mind their sexuality and guard their hearts? Titus chapter 2 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. That starts in the house, doesn't it? It starts in the house. Mothers, are you training your daughters to grow up to pursue the right kind of man? And are you showing them that when they do, this is how you ought to live? Men, are you likewise teaching your sons what it means to cherish your wife, both in word and in example? Are you talking to them about humble leadership that isn't threatened by a wise, industrious woman, the sort of woman the Proverbs commend to us? Are you showing them how to be gentle in conflict, peaceable in disagreement, committed to the covenant in marriage and passionate in love for your wife? Are you showing your sons that? Well, these things are really easy to say. Sometimes they're hard to do. Moms and dads, are we showing our children a love that excels all other loves? Giving them something to aim at, something to lay hold of, and young men and young women, boys and girls here now, are you aiming and uh, desiring to honor your parents by the sort of relationships you enter into? By following their example, recognizing that they're sinners and that they're, they're going to make mistakes just like Solomon and his Shulamite bride do. But as they repent, you learn what repentance looks like. And as they pursue passionate love, you understand what that should look like as well. This is a love that excels all other loves. It's a love that's full of freedom and full of honor. But it's also a love that's more than just sexual. As sexual as this song has been, we don't deny that a lot's been said in, this, uh, in these eight chapters full of imagery, uh, uh, physical imagery and so forth. And it's more than a physical love, in other words. As physically descriptive as the song has been, Love that excels all other loves is deeply emotional and relational beyond the physical. It's a friendship, if you will, on fire. So far, we've read a lot about physical intimacy, but now she begins to use these emotionally charged terms to describe a divine love in verses 6 and 7. What's happening here is that our Shulamite bride is expressing that her love for her husband is deeply emotional, using terms like jealousy and set my love upon your heart like a seal. My love is stronger than death and jealousy is fierce to the grave. It's like a flash of fire, the fire of God. She's saying, in other words, that her love for him isn't just noteworthy in the bedroom. It goes all the way to the grave. It matters more than the physical aspect of their relationship. You understand, young people, you may not think about this, the older you get, the more you will, there may come a time in marriage when the physical aspect begins to wane. All the running around the countryside and finding apple trees under which to enjoy your marriage is but a distant memory. But if your love is like a seal 
set upon the arm of your beloved, if it's the sort of love that goes all the way to the grave and is stronger than death, this is the sort of love that excels all other loves. When the song uses the word seal here, in the ancient world, a seal would have been a sign of ownership. Somebody would have put their seal on something and said, this is mine. And I don't think what's being implied here is property, but instead it's, it's a sort of uh, a love that lays hold of the other person. It lays claim to them. And it says, I love you all the way to the grave and beyond. Death cannot break our love. The grave is less fierce than the kind of love I have for you. Do you love your spouse like that? A love that says, no matter what, I'll never leave you. You're not only my lover, you're my best friend. Our friendship is like David and Jonathan's. It's a covenant bond that cannot be broken like friendship on fire. Some of you have lifelong friends, and you know what this is like. You know this kind of love with a friend that you've had your whole life. This is what the woman in the song envisions for her relationship with her spouse, a best friend kind of love that will never be quenched, and it's worth all the money in the world and more, she says in verse 7. And maybe it sounds silly to say that Christian love, which excels all other loves, is like a really good friendship. But ask yourself this, what does Jesus say the greatest kind of love that man can know is? He says, greater love hath no man than this, when he lays down his life for his friend. And then what does Jesus, two verses later in John 15, 15, go on to call his disciples? He says, no longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. I love you that much. I love you so much that I'm ready to go to the grave for you. Not because we're lovers, but because we're friends. That's the sort of love that Jesus has for us. It's the sort of love that goes to the grave and it's stronger than death. And this is key to a healthy Christian marriage, to excellent love. It's friendship. You ought to actually like the person you're married to, like a friend. You ought to get to know them more and more and enjoy being around them. I'll tell you what, it has been one of the distinct pleasures of my career in pastoral ministry to watch some of your reactions as we've talked about some of these things over the last eight weeks. There are among you, and I won't I won't make eye contact with anybody right now, but there are among you some who, when we talk about things like this, about closeness and fellowship and fun and friendship, that you just kind of lean into each other and smile at one another. Because you know what this is like. It's such an important part of a healthy marriage, isn't it? And you know that it is if you've experienced it. Friendship is a mutual enjoyment of the other that doesn't ask for anything. It doesn't need the physical part. It just loves the character of the one that it's with. You have shared values and commitments and emotional bonds that are stronger than even the physical bonds that marriage affords. Stronger bonds than even death or the grave. This is the kind of love that Christ has shown us and that we need to have in our marriages. A love that excels all other loves isn't just red hot with passion. It's also red hot with friendship. This kind of love must be carefully guarded, and the song tells us that it cannot be bought in verses 8 through 12. Verses 8 through 12, I think, are among the most important of the entire song of songs. 
Uh, our Bibles have it listed as others, probably, uh, others, and then she. There's this interaction between uh, perhaps her family. Uh, it may be the siblings that were back in chapter 1 that were talking to her about her, and she responds to them. And I think that this little section of the song give to us, and especially our young people, the wisest counsel for how you should think of yourself and your loved ones in light of the repeated admonition in this song to not awaken love until it pleases. The text implies here that the siblings recognize that their sister is too young to marry. It tells us that she's young, and the, uh, the, the statement she has no breasts is an indication that she's very young in age. And so her family or her friends or whoever it is that's speaking here are concerned to guard her sexual purity, to come alongside her in covenant fellowship and protect her from making unwise choices. Notice how they describe her behavior. They say basically our young sister, young women, and this applies to men as well, although the metaphor loses some of its strength, but it applies to young men and women. It says you can be one of two things. You can approach relationship and intimacy and your sexual person and, and how you interact with other people like a wall that keeps people out that stands tall and secure and says, I'm protected and I'm waiting for the right time. We we saw that imagery back earlier in the chapter, uh, or in in the song, I should say, as she was in the courtship phase with Solomon and she was waiting for the right time for her to cease being a wall. But here they say, you can be a wall. And if she's a wall, if she treats herself like a wall, if she behaves like a wall, we're going to build on her a battlement of silver. If she's impenetrable by suitors, we'll we'll not only assist you in protecting yourself, but we're going to reward you with precious silver here is the idea. They're so glad that their young sister is making wise and godly choices about who she relates to and how she does it. But if, however, she is a door, the door obviously implying that she's open to anyone that wants to take advantage of her sexually, we'll have to board you up. We care too much about you to let you throw your purity away and waste what God has given you as a blessing to you and your future husband. And so we're going to help you by coming around you in family and in fellowship and guard you so you won't fall into sin. If you're promiscuous like a wide open door, we're going to come alongside you. There's almost an echo of Galatians chapter 6. When one among you is caught up in sin, those of you who are more spiritual come alongside them and see them restored. So the idea for our young people here today, not only for you but for the rest of us, is that we should be concerned about what they think about dating about courtship, about intimacy, about touching, even how they appear to think about those things and how they dress. 
We want to guard the purity of our youth, of our young children, boys and girls, of our teenagers, and ensure that they are not opening themselves up to accusations of impropriety or even living in a way that might invite those sort of relationships to happen. And you young people, you need to be like walls. Protect yourself from people who would try to awaken love before it pleases. Guard yourselves, guard your hearts, guard your minds and your bodies and save yourself for God's design for sexual intimacy. We, the rest of us, those who are in Christian marriage or who have heeded the wisdom of God's word, or perhaps you're one of the many among us who didn't heed the wisdom of God's word in your youth. And some of these sermons on sexual purity and Christian marriage leave you feeling a little bit guilty and heavy laden because you know that you didn't enter into marriage that way. Let's not forget that Christ's blood pays for all our sins and we can still come to our young people and come into a situation where we're offering godly wisdom and counsel despite having messed it up right and royally ourselves. Isn't it amazing that God uses the one man in the Old Testament who probably messed up sexually more than anyone else to write a book on Christian love and marriage. We said that in the beginning. Isn't that the way God does it? Just like he used the Apostle Paul, the persecutor of the church, a hater of Jesus Christ, a zealot for the law, to write what Marshall read earlier. Do you think you're going to be saved by the law? What are you kidding me? You foolish Galatians. Paul wrote that. The Pharisee. Because that's how God redeems broken people. And so all of us here in Christ have the opportunity to share with and care for our young people and help uh, 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 encourage them to preserve their purity for marriage, even if you didn't. To be honest and transparent, sometimes in the church we treat sexual sin like the only irrecoverable sin in the world. Have you experienced that? You know that that's true, right? In many churches, there's a sort of unspoken reality that the only sin that you can't really recover from is sexual sin. And so we keep it hidden in the closet, don't we? We don't talk to people about the things that we're guilty of having done in the past, the things that God has rescued us from, the ways in which we have failed, and the way in which God has given us new life in Christ. And so what we do is we, we withhold from those who need to learn those lessons the very lessons they need to learn in order to prevent them from walking down the same paths that we did. It's okay to be transparent with one another. And to share honestly about the things that we've struggled with in the past and the victory that we've had in Christ in order to help our younger generation avoid the foolishness that we ourselves have exhibited. Well, the family wants her to be pure, and she says, well, I was. I was a wall. I wasn't a door. I was a wall. I protected myself. And when I grew older, she says, when my breasts became like towers, then I was in his eyes alone like one who finds peace. Solomon had this vineyard, and he had all these, all these people that he had let it out to, and money was flowing, and fruit was flowing, and I said, my vineyard, my vineyard, that's just for Solomon. All the money in the world can't buy it. This is the wisdom of a love that excels all others. Well, lastly, as we bring this book to a close, 
we discover that a love that excels all others is a love that's never satisfied. That might sound a bit disappointing, but it makes sense in light of what we've learned so far in this song, doesn't it? These final two verses give us a glimpse into married life in the future. Solomon and his Shulamite bride have grown old together, and they end the, the book by speaking back and forth to one another later in life. He says to her, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening to your voice, let me hear it. And she says, make haste, my beloved, and run over the mountains like a young stag or a gazelle. Each of them make clear later in life that they still love pursuing the other and they still love being pursued. They've not been satisfied with years and years of love, years and years of pursuit, years and years of joy and fun and intimacy. They want more and more and more of it from each other because they love each other so much. He says to her, sweetheart, I just want to hear your voice one more time. All the words I've heard so far, all the sweet and delightful and precious and passionate things you've said to me in shouts and in songs and in whispers, they're not enough. Give me more. That's the sort of love that he has for his wife. And she replies, perhaps in her old age, reminiscing on their youth, on their courtship, you hear the language of their dating relationship from early in the song. She says, hurry, my love, come quickly to me, just like you did when we were young, like a young stag, run across the hills like a gazelle, and come be with me. Keep loving me. You hear how they long for more? They can't wait to see each other again, to hear from each other again. There's a total lack of satisfaction. Now, I don't mean to say that they're dissatisfied. What I mean is that they remain ever able, unable to satiate their longing for each other. Their whole life long, they just want to be with each other more and more. This is the love that excels all others. It wants more of the one that it loves, and it gives more of itself throughout the course of its marriage. It's always wanting to hear more, to touch more, to be together more, to hurry home at the end of the day to see and to serve the one that it loves. That's a love that excels all others. Young people, that's a love that you should pursue. And less than that, you shouldn't settle for. Do you hear Christ in this song? We've caught glimpses of him over the last eight weeks together. But do you hear him in these words, especially tonight? He's closer to us than a brother. He's our elder brother. Closer than any blood relationship we could ever have is our relationship with Jesus Christ. He's overcome every obstacle to have us as his own. Run across the mountaintops, run through the valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death. His love for us is as fierce as the grave and stronger than death itself. He doesn't chide us in our foolishness or sin, but he speaks words of comfort, and he reminds us of the covenant that he made with us from eternity past. He gives his love to us freely, 
And in Christ, he gives us freedom in our relationship with him. And just like our Shulamite bride says in verse 2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And if I go, I'll certainly come back and bring you to be with myself. Isn't that amazing? Lastly, you know that Jesus' love is the only love that truly satisfies. Perhaps you're here this evening and you're single. You're not yet married and perhaps you're afraid you never will be. Maybe God has in store for you a life of singleness. But if you think that marriage is the ultimately satisfying relationship, you've missed the point. In spite of everything this book tells us about the joys of physical intimacy and the excellence of a godly marriage, it's meant to draw our attention to the fact it ends by telling us it'll never actually be enough. You'll always want more. Your spouse will never be and can never be what Christ alone can only be for you. Even in marriage, there's longing for more. But in Christ, you have everything you could desire fulfilled in him. And so all of us, married or otherwise unmarried, and perhaps will never be married, each of us needs to long more for Jesus our heavenly bridegroom. He's the true husband. He's the best spouse. His love alone is divine. His love is all excelling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to want more of Jesus. Help us in our marriages to treat each other the way that your word instructs us to, to have freedom and honor and mutual love and enjoyment to guard ourselves and to help protect our young people from impure decisions and foolish relationships. Grant deep and meaningful friendships in the marriages in our church and even among those who are not married. Give relationships like David and Jonathan had, covenant relationships of deep and abiding love. And again, Lord, we pray that you would show us more of Christ, that we might long for him more than anyone knowing that he alone can truly satisfy. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.